0: It just will not work the first time. It, it absolutely won't work. I expect it to not work because that's really where the thinking begins. That's where it starts, not where it ends. That's not where you throw in the towel. That's when the party gets started. Almost everywhere I look, I see a missed opportunity. And I'm thinking this deserves a wider audience. But to see it go from a uh, single cell to a fully formed creature before your eyes, uh, it's just beyond love. It's, uh, we talk about students taking ownership of their projects, well it's that in spades. Let's put it this way, she created a machine that could be trained to think for itself. Our palette is the world. I am Richard Young, and I've been teaching at Sir Wilfrid Laurier Secondary School here in Orleans since 1997 or so. So all 25 of my years have been spent in this space. Same space physically, but a very different space mentally. So there's been a kind of progress.
1: You're listening to the OCDSB XL podcast, a podcast documenting stories of powerful learning in the Ottawa Carleton District School Board. I'm Cam Jones, your host. A number of years ago, Ted Dinnersmith's educational documentary made High Tech High the talk of what learning can look like. To a public school educator, it seemed an impossible aspiration to imagine. That is when I met Richard Young. Richard is the polymath, engineer come educator behind the most innovative robotics program that I have encountered in the OCDSB. In my conversation with Richard, we talk about wondering what's under the hood as the first step to imagining something that doesn't exist. The next step, according to Richard, it is creating that something in, making that something in, our own image. Of course, believing in the capacity of our learners to create and make from imagination is an equally important first step. And it leads to children thinking of themselves not just as consumers, but as creators as well.
0: Okay, I'll, uh, this is where I'll wonder how far back I should be going. I mean, I've always been interested in science and, and hockey and uh, music. And uh, my first record was uh, Boney M, Night Flight to Venus. I got that at age 11, but <clears throat> I'm going too far back now, I think. So um, in high school, I fell in love with physics and math and English, but um, I had to kind of decide. So what can you do with math and physics? It seemed at the time, the best thing would be to study engineering. I went to McMaster university for engineering physics, and then I did a master's degree in engineering physics at McMaster, uh, in semiconductor physics. So I learned about, uh, PN junctions and transistors and kind of the backbone of the modern world, the things that make it tick. Um, then started a PhD in electrical engineering quit after one year but not after also falling in love with digital signal processing, especially in the context of music filtering, reverb and echo and flange effects uh, and seeing the math that underlies that. And even as a grad student, as a TA, I kind of like teaching. I thought, am I gonna be a teacher? And I thought, please God, no, I don't think I could handle that. And then as fate would have it, um, I I went to teacher's college after I quit my PhD. And uh, a month or two later, I had an interview at the OCDSB. And 25 years later, here I am loving it more than ever. So I, I, I really count myself as blessed. I teach robotics now, and I've been doing something like that since the very very first day pretty much um, I just didn't realize it was going to be called robotics I was playing with hardware and software and motors and wires and lights and speakers and programming and it's uh, every year has been a bit better and um, this year was a lot better um, so and I hope next year is I mean pandemic notwithstanding don't get me wrong there are some drawbacks, but, uh, I still very much love my job and the project centered project driven nature of it. And I think uh, my students would say the same.
1: So Richard, this is a conversation that I've been waiting for, for about two years to happen. I think about two years. Um, and obviously we've had some, some, uh, world interruptions along the way, Global interruptions. But one of the reasons that I'm so excited to have you on this podcast is actually covered in your introduction, which failed to introduce your name or your school previously. Because where in most podcasts I would edit out that sort of personal history coming to teaching component. What makes you fascinating is you are a holistic learner. You have interests in dozens of discrete, seemingly discrete, education world discrete uh, disciplines, and you bring them all together in a classroom where students literally invent to learn make to learn experiment to learn come up with outlandish audacious ideas and then make them happen and so with all of that said welcome to the xl podcast <laughs> so let's let's start here one of the things i like to focus on is the transition, the progression into the kind of classroom that you're operating in now. And so I make the assumption based on personal experience, and maybe this is flawed when it comes to you, but I make the assumption that this is not where things began. Things became and become the way that they are in your classroom right now. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, could you give us some insight draw back the curtains and let us see the progression of a classroom facilitated by Richard Young, such that as we build towards what's happening now in your classroom, people can see that it's actually accessible. This is not something that only Richard Young can do. This is something that with a willingness and an aptitude and a passion, anyone could do.
0: Yeah, Um, I agree. And in the realm of technology education, we are fortunate in that it's, we can create it in our own image. It's like whatever you're into, there is a place for you in some tech course. And that's equally true for students. PD days are notoriously difficult for tech teachers because sometimes they occupy a unique space and they don't have a lot in common with other teachers. Um, we have, you know, similar classroom management issues, I suppose, but um, almost every tech classroom has its own personality. And when the day comes that I retire, someone else will take that space and sort of cast it in their image too. So it's not like a math class or a physics class where it's quite prescribed. There's a lot of flexibility here. And I'm fortunate in that my interests and passions align very well with what many students are uh, demanding and what the province and the world seem to be Um, moving toward. So learning about artificial intelligence, learning about automation, learning about um, robotics in general, hardware, software, um, what are binary numbers, what are logic gates. Um, I could go on in, in those painful details, but I won't. But there's a demand for it and it's kind of fun and it's kind of cool. And it's especially fun and cool when you can turn it into something Project driven. I'm going to be saying project driven a lot, I'm afraid. I don't like cliches and I'll avoid most of them, but that one I won't because when a kid falls in love with a project, it is like nothing else. Um, You're not nagging them. You're not reminding them to hit the deadlines. It's like they're doing it because they want to be doing it and you couldn't pay them to stop doing it. I like when that happens. I like when it happens for myself and I like when it happens for my students. That's the. that's the nirvana, that is the the place to be, um, and that's I'm reminded of um, the uh, very old saying that a student is not a vessel to be filled like with knowledge, um, but a fire to be kindled. It sounds like one of those ancient Greek things, and I suspect it is, and I sincerely believe that. I fell in love with that the first time I heard it, maybe 30 years ago. And there's not a week that goes by in my career or life where I'm not reminded of that, like kindling fires and it sort of looks after itself and you might get the bellows out every now and then or something, but it, it looks after itself and it's a, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to see when it's, uh, when it's working well. I don't know if I, I don't know if I answered your question.
1: I think you have, because I think the follow-up question has to be what does learning look like? for students in your classroom and by extension, what must learning look like for you to make that happen?
0: Okay. Yes. Yeah, so there was like my learning, which is ongoing, always on the lookout for more interesting things to do, better ways of delivering things. But from the student's perspective, learning looks like Um, There'll be some early in a course, let me back up. I have a grade nine, 10, 11, and 12 robotics program at Strewill. And in the beginning, it was just 11 and 12. I guess in the very, very beginning, it was just an OAC course way back when, but now it's nine, 10, 11, 12. And so I can design things. I have designed things so that by the time they reach grade 12, that is an apex that even overlaps with their, what they'll be doing in, in university. And in grade 12, we can do some amazing things, but I want to make sure that there's amazing things to do in grade nine, in grade 10 and in grade 11, not just grade 12. I don't want to be the uh, teacher who uh, keeps dangling the carrot of grade 12 in front of the uh, grade nines and tens. There has to be some immediate payoff, but always with an eye to the future. Um, Sometimes I have to remind them, you know, what we're doing now is like fun in and of itself, and some of you can appreciate the meaningfulness and the relevance, but I also want to remind you that this is also an introduction to something you're going to see in first and second and sometimes third year university, depending on what you study. Um, So there's the baby steps in climbing a mountain, and each step has to be obviously meaningful, and for lack of a better word, fun and motivating like in and of itself. And then it's an accumulation of those. That's kind of how the program has been designed.
1: So maybe paint us a picture of that progression. So where and in what course code are you finding a grade nine student? And then sort of briefly show us that progression through the four years?
0: Sure. In grade nine, the course code is TEJ10. It's an open course. In grade 10, TEJ20. Grade 11 is TEJ3M. And grade 12 is TEJ4M. And in a grade nine class, on the very first day after I talk about why self-driving cars actually don't exist yet. It's a very hard problem. And we talk about uh, some introductory ideas. We talk about how there's hardware and software running your cell phone, running this remote control car, running a Roomba, running satellites, not just computers and things that look like robots. And then 10 minutes later we're counting in binary and by the end of the class, like, they're, they're kind of liking it and they're kind of Looking back, um, surprised at themselves for like ever not understanding it. I remember one grade nine kid on the first day, on the very, very first day, I saw him like looking at a piece of paper and I thought doodling. But no, he was counting in binary as far as he could go and he had filled up the page with ones and zeros. And I thought, okay, we've gone too far. That's too, too, too much success. You like it too much. And so just to take things like that and to make them sort of fun and interesting. And so the grade nine course, yeah, we'll talk about binary numbers. We'll talk about how to add binary numbers. We talk about what does it mean to program a computer. We learn some basics. I don't want to step on the grade 10 computer science course toes too much, but we have to know a bit about programming, a bit about if statements. Um, I really always... Talk about having them look under the hood of a computer or a cell phone or a laptop or a Chromebook. Looking under the hood. You know, My classroom used to be an auto shop and the, uh, the metaphor of looking under the hood is forever relevant. Um, a student would not take an auto shop if they could just, you know, I'm not interested in how it works. I just want to buy a Ferrari and go fast. Well, if that's how you look at uh, the world of computing and modern technology then well you don't care about looking under the hood but for those of us who do it's pretty fascinating and you'll have to look under the hood if you ever want to design something from scratch on your own rather than just be a consumer we want to be creators not just consumers so yeah binary numbers a little bit about programming enough to get us up and running with microcontrollers little arduino microcontrollers which can then be wired up to, I guess the first and most boring thing to do is to blink an LED. So digital right pin three high, delay 1000 milliseconds. Digital right pin three low, delay 1000 milliseconds. And that's in an infinite loop. And then what if you speed up that loop? What if you replace the LED with a speaker? Now you've got a tone. Now you're making music. Can you make music? So some students then, like I couldn't even stop them, they want to make a take on me by uh-huh I, and they and they and they do, and I just don't dare stop them. So it's just you know the fire gets kindled for some at that point, and then I have to work a bit harder for others. and then we're playing with motors, and then there's grade 10, 11, and twelve, but. Uh,
1: and I want to get to grade 10, 11, and 12. I just want to interrupt you for a second because for the lay people, of course, not me, but but the others in the audience who might not be aware of it, what you were just describing was code, correct?
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: And I think a nuance that we're going to come back to at some point, so I want to just put it on the table right now, is these are not predetermined blocks that you were describing. This is not. This is not going into a software where the you know, whatever you said, the pause for 1000 milliseconds, this is not a pre-described box that they're just pasting together prefab. They're learning to write this code from scratch and testing to make sure that light goes on or not based on written code.
0: Exactly, and it's their code. Every now and then, as I'm teaching them a concept, I'll show them a program that does something, but when they're doing stuff, it's it's got to be from them and it's it's got to be from scratch it's copying and pasting just isn't that much fun um, so students in my courses are not uh, don't tend to kind of fake it they don't tend to you know just jump through the hoops just just want to get this over with like they're doing it because they want to do it and it's something that hasn't been done before they're not uh, and every, every now and then someone might be tempted to copy and paste, but it's pretty obvious. And uh, But when it's running well, it's uh, utterly from scratch. You've, you've hit something that I feel passionate about. There's very little prefab about anything I do, and that's important.
1: So in grade nine, you're coming towards, say, the end of a semester, a quadmester this year. They've started um, counting in binary. By the end of the course, what are they programming? Describe for us what that looks like.
0: By the end of the course, at, like starting today, they are programming a Meteor game from from scratch. Um, so making circles fall down a window, their their Y coordinate is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when it drops off the bottom, it goes back up to the top in a random horizontal location and falls again and you have a spaceship near the bottom of the screen and you try to avoid being, being hit by a meteor and there's a, a life meter on the window somewhere that they build and design on their own. There's a score, there's a time that's, and everything is done from the more fundamental concepts that they've mastered through earlier practice. So the meteor game is something that uh, the grade nine robotics course sort of culminates in. And in terms of hardware, um, I'm, I'm thinking about how to go about that because we're doing it remotely and I think we'll lean quite heavily on Tinkercad, which allows um, a fairly sophisticated and satisfying simulation of the Arduino and a breadboard and wires and lights and even motors and sensors. So I will come up with a way to make that as interesting as possible this year.
1: So moving on to grade 10 and maybe thinking about some of the nuances from grade nine, but also getting into the, the kind of the cool projects that they work towards as they, as they come in contact with, with more experience.
0: So in grade 10, they can take the ideas and it's always tricky in grade 10 because about a third of the class did not take the grade nine class. I think this year might have even been half of the students that didn't take it. So now you've got like two separate uh, categories of clientele. But um, apart from that boring, tedious stuff, um, uh, typically the grade 10 students will review the grade 9 ideas and then kind of crank them up a notch. So something that we might do in grade 10. And I'm I'm kind of like digging through my mind because every year it's kind of different. Every year it's kind of different. I don't have uh, a standardized textbook that I've created where this is the project that happens in grade, you know, at this point in grade 10 and then... Um, but I will say that grade 10 would be like, um, say a burglar alarm, trying to come up with some clever a clever arrangement of sensors so that somebody cannot steal a spoon sitting on top of a shoebox, like it's a gallery display or something, and what kinds of sensors can you have? So it starts off as a problem like that, but then they realize, well, we did a lab on photoresistors, so perhaps I could detect the shadow of the hand that's reaching for the spoon. And if I'm clever, I can kind of camouflage the photoresistors so the prospective thief won't know where they are. We've played with microphones by then, so there's oodles of things you can do with a microphone. As of this year, um, we can use a, a library available for the Arduino that can allow a little microcontroller like... On the Arduino to do something called a fast Fourier transform algorithm, which can allow our equipment to detect different frequencies. It's pretty easy for a computer to do or a cell phone to do, but for something relatively dumb like an Arduino, this is a this is no mean feat. It's not something that we wrote ourselves, but it's a library that we can use to do all kinds of things. Um, and this might be more of a grade twelve thing. So. I'm, I'm getting excited and jumping ahead of myself but to be able to detect pitch so with a glockenspiel to have a glockenspiel controlling a vehicle one of our arduino based vehicles with a microphone well now the vehicle can know what is the pitch of the sound that it just heard or what sequence of pitches so it could be that a student could detect a sequence of notes and if the notes matches something in the Arduino's brain, uh, a template in the Arduino's brain, then it, it turns left, or it turns right, or it, it goes through some little dance routine. All of this is possible, and uh, all because of that one little al- little algorithm, and that's a relatively new thing. So, and these things sometimes trickle down to lower grades. Once the grade 12s have nailed it as a proof of concept, then it can become a grade 11 thing. Um, it can be more accessible to the 11s
1: and i think that's one of the things that i'm quite enamored with when i think of your program and i think something that it sets it sets it aside from other programs like it that i've encountered which is this idea you're calling it trickle down but as the expertise gets developed and developed within your awareness but also beyond your awareness as we're going to talk about shortly that learning becomes part of you know if the if the 12s are going to do proof of concept on one thing and that's going to become part of a grade 11 course and later a grade 10 course in part the reason is is because students are discovering new things in grade 12 which just leap beyond what they discovered 2 years ago so so it's the case that you know not only do you not have a textbook or a prefab approach to this course you know not unlike bicycle components as improvements or, or new ideas come into play, they become part of the whole program. They don't get isolated in some age group by sort of, you know, unchallenged a fact. It's like, okay, let's, let's see where we can take this down here. And we're going to let some of the older students start, as you say, taking it beyond that level.
0: Exactly. And then I find out, wow, that's possible. I mean, I'm surprised every year. Every year I, I make some discoveries with that students um, stumble upon or create themselves from scratch. So it, it is a tough one to say, like what is the progression of courses? What's, um, what projects would you do in grade 10? What projects would you do in grade 11? And etc. And it just changes. And it kind of has to change, partly to, I mean, as a side effect, it keeps me very, very much into it. But it, it and I can't, I can't fake um, loving something. Uh, so it can't be the same exact same thing every year, because as a human, I would not be able to hide my boredom. And so when I'm into it, it makes it easier for them to get into it, which makes me more into it. So there's kind of a positive feedback effect. Which is another concept from control theory in electrical engineering, uh, like uh, positive feedback, negative feedback. It's uh, it's like I, I often go on about how much I care about steam, science, tech, engineering, um, art, and math, and and I put this to my students sometimes. Like I, I challenge them to come up with a with it with an idea for a project that within thirty seconds we couldn't come up with a or to come up with anything, like crack open a dictionary, pick a word at random, and two-thirds of the time we'll be able to turn this into a, a fantastic STEAM project, but but I digress.
1: Well, so I take your point. For a program that is perpetually developing into something new all the time, for me to get you to, to piecemeal the experience is actually not authentic, right? So yeah, let's do something else. Cause I mean, really what I'm doing here is trying to to, to draw out a storyline. So to my own fault for trying to tell the story that way, let's dig into what's possible. And maybe let's start with this. Describe for our listeners some of your favorite student projects, irrespective of grade level, that have turned your thinking sideways, as, as students came to you with these ideas and then, and then realized them?
0: Oh boy. Well, it doesn't happen very, very often, but it happens at least once a year. And these are always noteworthy. So most recently, um, a couple of students in a grade 12 robotics class wanted to make a ball that can roll by itself. So it's stationary one moment, and the next moment it's moving around, and you've got uh, an Arduino with a breadboard in your hands, and depending on how you tilt it, the ball moves in that direction. And I'm thinking, you guys have no idea the physics and the weird center of mass kind of stuff that's going on here. It's almost, this is too much for a high school kid. This is too much for a first year engineering kid but they seemed keen on it. So I said, okay, okay. So we chatted at the whiteboard a few times over the coming weeks. And I realized they've got a very good handle on this. And, um, even most adults would say, what do you mean? This ball is going to roll by itself. This is not possible. You know, Newton's laws. I mean, this, you have to have an external force acting on it, but they knew that if they could have a, like a pendulous weight on the inside and if they could have it tilt, strategically, then the ball could sort of forever be rolling in that direction. And this weight was attached to a little vehicle and the wheels were rolling on the inside of the, I'm not going to give it away, but it's, it's sort of a magic trick and, uh, and they did it and incredibly you were there. So you saw them do it. Uh, So I didn't dream it. I, I was so, so proud. It went to the last minute. And of course, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. Um there are many a slip betwixt the cup and the lip, and uh, saying you can do something is one thing, but doing it um, on demand. So that's when I was utterly thrilled and I realized uh, my students are still surprising me. I can come up with probably other examples. I,
1: yes, I want other examples. I just want to, you know, pipe in for a second there. I don't have um, a background, that lets me be astonished in the way that you were astonished at that project. What I remember as being central to that component of the day is that these students were modifying this thing literally up until the minute they ran it. And I've been, I've been, you know, personally involved in a little bit of robotics and programming and The energy that was in that room as that group alone, and this was every group that was doing this, they were running all over the place, knowing, realizing, you know, we got to tweak that. We got to tweak this. We got to repair that right up until the minute that they presented this project. And I just think when I remember back to that time, how much energy I felt coming from their energy as they really wanted this thing to work. It was almost as if all those chats at the whiteboard had accomplished two things, what was possible and almost what was impossible. And they had to wrestle with both of those live in the classroom because they wanted to make this thing work. And there was no way that that happened without dozens of hours of collaboration not within the school day like it's just impossible
0: yeah yeah you've really nailed it and you've hit upon something that is another theme of my career and that is to the eye of an outsider to the eye of an observer it's really hard to sense the real profoundness of what just happened um You'd have to be quite familiar with the difficulty of the physics problem. You'd have to be familiar with the fact that none of this code is copied and pasted. This is not just some uh program that these folks found and, you know, are calling, you know, have they stamped their name on it and they they're pretending it's theirs. It is absolutely not that so I don't even know how to overcome that. I mean, it's easy enough to sense the emotion, you know, the electricity of the room when these folks are scrambling and testing up until the last minute. And then it's like uh, a basketball player uh, swishing from half a buzzer beater or whatever, it's like that. And everybody gets that. But here it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to communicate because Who's got time to check, you know, is that all copied and pasted? Is that just something they ordered off of Amazon a week ago and then just made it look like their own? But to see it go from a a single cell to a fully formed creature before your eyes, uh, it's just beyond love. It's, uh, you know, we talk about students taking ownership of their projects. Well it's that in spades. It's just so... uh, that's kind of what it's all about and yeah when you see the emotion in the room that's easy enough to perceive everybody you know it's a human thing but the uh to be familiar with what's under the hood and to know that uh wow all that went into it and all the learning and all the problem solving and all the almost impossible amount of problem solving that went into that it's i think for most people like at another school if somebody just you know downloads something and passes it off as their own, eh, they're happy enough, you know, look mom, I made a robot. Okay, fantastic. What's for supper? Yada yada. But this is just from idea to you know f- to creation and they've nurtured it every step along the way and there is a special place for those projects and those are the only ones I'm interested in especially at that level.
1: And it strikes me and i and i'm I'm leaning on you for another example, but it strikes me that this is also a product of your process, right that that you cannot skip steps to get to a point where you're creating projects like that. It requires the experience of counting in binary and and doing projects that may feel more cumbersome, less um you know. Uh, less jaw-dropping so that you can get that under your experience belt so that you can progress to that next stage and start to do things that literally no one believed you'd be able to do, including your teacher who was going to help you figure it out.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You know, I'm reminded of an analogy that I think is a very good one. And that is if, if, if this robotics program is a cooking school then we're going to spend a day or two caramelizing onions on a gas flame and we'll learn about that and maybe we'll learn about the sugars that are created in the process and how it affects the taste now that's not a fancy recipe on its own but it's one part of a bigger thing one day and then another day we're learning about the proper way to grill a steak and why you have to let it rest afterwards for three minutes or whatever whatever i'm actually not any kind of a cook but i do know that there are sort of mundane things you have to do along the way to accumulate the skills and knowledge but then one day you say you know what i don't have to lean on this recipe book i know enough about how these things work so that i can come up with my own Delicious seven-course meal, and I will remember this feast for the rest of my life. And that is exactly um, what we're into over here: um, learning how to cook so that we can create our own recipes and write our own cookbook by the end of it. This is this is what uh, is exciting: um, making uh, blamanges from a recipe, even with. <laughs> I don't know why I came up with that.
1: Reaching deep in the well of culinary metaphor, trying to get this point made is is just, I'm entertained just by this component of our conversation. Yeah, I'm trying hard. Give me me another example of a project that that did surprise you.
0: Uh, And you'll notice that that project had hardware and software. There was code and there was a whole, there was a wireless transmitter, a wireless receiver. There was some physics involved. And even the ball itself was paper mache, I should mention. Even the ball was not off the rack. They are such believers of the it's all you uh, ethos that I love.
1: And so I should say that we're going to release video of that project and a whole bunch of other projects from that day I visited you um shortly after this podcast. So we will make the 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 pictures of that um come across if 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 our descriptions of that project are, are are lacking in 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 quality. Um
0: so you asked for another project. So um so those who are interested in all that transpired on that day will see the other projects. And there was that Morse code uh transmitter receiver that a wonderful student named Matthew created from scratch. And that's well worth a look. And the signal, maybe I should just talk about that one for like a minute. It wasn't the one that first sprung to mind, but uh, while we're here, this uh, I mentioned that we learn about microphones. We learn about making sounds out of a speaker. We learn about um, programming for loops, while loops, if statements, we talk about arrays, all these programming ideas. But what really brings that stuff to life is when a student realizes well i've learned about this and that and i know how to hear sounds and i know how to detect if the volume is above a certain threshold i can write that if statement i think i can make something that you know one box is making beeps and another box is hearing the beeps translating the morse code into text and displaying it on a little lcd display that i also have learned how to use and so that's what Matthew did. He had one little laser cut box where which would allow him to type in letters. There's an Arduino inside the box, of course. And then he'd press a button labeled send, a physical button. And then we would hear beep, 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 beep. And then some distance away is another box with a little L C D panel. And an arduino and a microphone and some very very fancy programming inside that matthew wrote start to finish and we see roughly the message that was being sent in morse code appearing on the screen and i dare say that's never been done in north america not just my school or not just the ocdsb and it's a real thrill to say i really don't think any student has ever done that um, I can't talk about Asia, but I can maybe talk about North America. Um, and it just, I'll never forget it. And I know Matthew will never forget it. Um, another example, much earlier in my teaching career, there was a, uh, I cannot remember her name. I think I remember her first name, Jennifer something, who was really interested in artificial neural networks and artificial intelligence. And we're talking early 2000s long before iphones long before imacs early 2000s and i had a bit of experience with this uh learning algorithm called the bla the back propagate back prop excuse me back propagate back it was we shortened it to back prop back propagation learning algorithm and it was one of several artificial neural networks that existed back then and that's the one that I was most a- acquainted with and so I thought you know Jen I think using these Windows 386 machines maybe 486 and QBasic QBasic is sort of like a, a the dinosaur of programming languages for Windows machines Windows came with QBasic and I said I think we could probably build an artificial neural network using the backprop algorithm from scratch. And I mentioned to her that there was some university-level calculus involved, and she didn't bat an eye. She said, bring it on. And I thought, "Uh, maybe we can chat at the blackboard a couple of times, and you will be thoroughly dissuaded. She was not dissuaded. She learned about how to multiply vectors together and how to implement these calculus based fancy algorithms and she did it she did it and i still have um her report somewhere it's it's a keeper so that is just one of those times where something happened that really had no had no right to happen in in any high school classroom in in north america and i was just forever proud of her here we are almost 20 years later
1: so Richard, I don't think I missed it. I think I don't understand what she did. What did she do?
0: Let's put it this way. She created a machine that could be trained to think for itself. So we tested it by... So that's what machine... Today, we call it machine learning. You you, can, you know, every week in the news, you hear some something about machine learning. Well, machine learning is all about the backpropagation learning algorithm. It is the the winning artificial neural network algorithm from back in the day. Everything is backprop today. All the machine learning is. So what she did was she wrote a program that could look at a picture. If you trained it to recognize the difference between an oak tree and a maple tree, you could train it by showing it lots and lots of pictures, like hundreds of thousands of pictures of trees. And during the training stage, you say, this is an oak tree. And you press a button saying oak tree. This is a maple, this is an oak, this is a maple. And they're all different pictures. And then after the training is done, this machine with maybe 99% accuracy can see a tree that it has never seen before and identify if it's an oak or a maple, or any number of trees, whatever you trained it on. So this is the idea. This is machine learning, Um, showing it um, a large set of training examples, and then unleashing it on the world. And it can recognize things on its own from here on in. So that's the power of kind of the modern era. That's what machine learning is all about. That's what Tesla vehicles are doing right now, gathering data and trying to improve the algorithms for recognizing what's going on on a street and then turning left or right or braking or whatever accordingly.
1: So what this grade 12 student accomplished is effectively what allows photos on my Mac to start recognizing faces of people so that I can click and see pictures of my daughter based on facial recognition. But this high school student Wrote a machine that could do this.
0: Yes, yes, yes. You, you, absolutely. It, you could say that our phones are doing something else when it like uh, a modern camera will know that there's a face here and it's probably doing some tricks about you know the distance, the ratio of the distance between pupils, and the distance between the tip of a nose and the pupils. There's some other tricks that are being used there, kind of template-based recognition. But certainly that is the gist of it to uh, this, this, this very, very fancy pattern matching. Yeah, yeah, she did that. Uh, I'll never forget it, uh, I'm astonished. Huh.
1: So talk about sort of your work within and beyond this course that you're always working within and the ways in which you envision your work and how that work can be community connected and reach beyond the walls of school. And so, you know, normally we we would talk about, you know, who you're working with and who you're sharing your learning with. I want to focus our conversation on your vision for all of those, for all of those components, because you have a vision that I think is very, very interesting. And so could you tell us a little bit of background on the sort of made it, made it Sir Will, um, as a starting point, but then share with, share with us where you want to go.
0: Sure. Sure. About five or six years ago, this started to gel in my mind. I had realized over the years that we do some truly amazing things and maybe even uh, some of the designs we've come up with could be of value to other schools. Um, so to, to come up with a structure, a system in which students can be creative, do their thing, business as usual, but we're learning about programming, we're learning about hardware, software, we're learning about how to put together circuits and sensors and we're learning about how to design things for laser cutters or 3D printers. And the thing we make so often was a one-off. This would be of value to many people, to teachers who want to entertain and educate their students. This is kind of cool. This is a cool little gizmo. Um, But then the bell rings and um, I might have calf duty or hall duty and just other things happen. And But over the years, I've gotten a little more tenacious about this. Like I really see the potential of a Santa's workshop. I, I can't think of a better way to put it. It's Santa's workshop. It's so silly to put it that way. But what if you can train students from grade 9 to grade 12? You're not really departing from the proper curriculum. This is not something... Uh, wildly uh, inappropriate, like we're doing all the uh, pr- proper learning to prepare students for you know post-secondary life. Um, but we're making things, and I'm, I'm, I'll be more specific later, but we're making things that elementary school teachers could use, that high school teachers could use in our board, things that we're spending probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars a year on, and that always always breaks my heart that my students have made something that you guys are paying thousands of dollars for when i say you guys i just mean you know a busy elementary school teacher who just wants i don't know a a grade two class to see a a little ozobot zip around for 15 minutes and that counts as robotics but we, we can do better um like so many things i mentioned the um the glockenspiel controlled car i mean it is not much of a step to turn that into a song a voice singing controlled car and this car is something that we've laser cut and assembled ourselves for maybe 30 or 40 dollars worth of parts as opposed to a couple of hundred dollars And if something bad happens to a part of the car, we can replace that part of the car. It just doesn't go into the garbage. Um, So ultimately, it would be a dream come true to have like an engineering department. It could even start with a, a teacher's need. I would love a class set of uh acoustic communicators that can work across the room. Now that's something we could take to the drawing board, design and build from scratch. And now this teacher has a class set of something that might not even exist in the outside world. And then another teacher might see that and say, where'd you get those? And well it's conveniently stamped with our logo that says made at Sir Will. And and everybody's happy. Um, I'd love for our board to save a lot of dollars every year for these in-house solutions. And I know that there's expertise at other schools, but we're kind of all operating in our silos and uh, and collaboration is very very difficult to impose from above. It kind of has to grow organically. I'm all about free will. Um but anyway, um that's uh I guess the best description of this Santa's workshop idea is we have been using these laser cut Arduino-based robotic vehicles for the last four or five years, and it's version 19 or version 20 of the design. It's very, very refined. We can plug in different Sensors, different modules, each of them laser cut to accommodate the different sensors like an ultrasonic rangefinder that plugs into a little socket that then plugs into the vehicle. It's sort of like an in-house Lego and students have designed things to work in this system and I think it deserves a wider, a wider audience. This is something, um, yeah, it's, it's cool, it's productive and it could save us all a lot of money.
1: I don't want to spend too much time on a soapbox here, but I, I want to share something with you because every time you tell me about these ideas, I, I, I hearken back to an experience that I had and Gary Stager calls what we're describing physical computing. And this meant nothing to me until I had the opportunity to go and do some PD with Gary and what I realized then at Constructing Modern Knowledge is Coding is not actually about putting prefab boxes together to, you know, achieve some predetermined end. That kids of all ages are capable of creating any number of things, of making any number of things, which comes back to your Santa's workshop idea. And they can dream these things. And there are other students who, you know, four students by students could spend time every semester inventing and building and making these, these tools that for students of younger or older experience could then start to use these tools and experiment with them. And so you call, you know, you, you mentioned the Ozobot, you know, or, or, or maybe we're talking about a sphero we're talking about a lot of prefab plastic that has very, very limited use you're talking about something that literally from every component of the product, including the code and the purpose could be custom made to suit a need for student learning by students learning to build these things. And what I start to imagine, this is the soapbox part is you talked about having these things that don't exist in-house solutions that our students are making and inventing for our students. And it's, this is the part that I connect to my experience with Gary Steger is that so much of the coding experience, which is now mandated K-8 to math curriculum, is really superficial, disconnected programming. It's not physical computing at all. It's ticking a box with really, uh, you know, unsophisticated, um, you know, checkbox style activities, because I think in part, physical computing is so outside of the typical experience of many educators in our generation, that that how can we make this a, this powerful version of physical compu- physical computing, pardon me, available to both teachers and students? And you you know how you actually have the solution. Um, and 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 really, the only barrier it strikes me when you start to dream is 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 it's not the capacity to do it. It's just the it's the the not even the tools to do it, you have the tools. It's just the, the willingness and the awareness that as you said earlier, we can do better.
0: Exactly, exactly. You've hit all the nails right on the head. Um, I'm gonna say almost every day, um, when I'm, you know, during a normal school year, I walk to the office, I check my mail, I walk back. Almost everywhere I look, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Almost everywhere I look, I see a missed opportunity. Um, For example, I walk past the stairs, the stairwell. There are these metal handrails and the metal handrails um, have a proper handrail, but there's also like a curvy section running almost parallel below the handrail. And below the curvy section are vertical posts, vertical metal, maybe one centimeter in diameter um, rails. And when you tap one, it makes a certain tone. And when you tap the neighboring one, it's a different tone because they're different lengths. Well, we could exploit that to turn it into some kind of ridiculously cool art installation using an Arduino with little little mallets knocking on them. And it can even be interactive because if there's a microphone nearby and it can hear people walking, let's say in the vicinity, it can tap in response to the wall. Anyway, that or a display case. No, wait a minute. Another example, I see uh, paintings that students have done and one of our art teachers um, hangs the paintings on a wall. Well, one is a portrait, kind of regal looking, um, classically done portrait. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it be neat if the eyes followed you when you walked down the hallway this is something we can literally do. I bought these little plastic doll's eyeballs from either Amazon or AliExpress five or seven years ago, and there just aren't enough hours in the day. I've already attached them to two servo motors with drinking straws, and I can make servo motors pivot. My students can make servo motors pivot. My students can make servo motors pivot um, based on what a couple of light sensors see. Well, the problem is solved. It's just. Assembling the thing and then mounting it and having I don't know everybody's blessings and then making sure you're not stepping on any toes and so that's the kind of stuff uh, that's the steam demon in me if, if you will the, there's so much going on there. We, we, we've already heard that it seems like um, the eyes in a painting uh, are always following you because well, they're just staring at the uh, the painter. So there's this illusion, but this could be done for real. And not just that, but things could light up in the background with LEDs, according to, you know, in an interactive way, which reminds me of a grade nine project that we did sort of like that. I tried to do something like that with my grade nines three or four years ago. We made a light box, an interactive light box. I don't know if I can describe this well, but uh, if you picture a shoe box turned on its side, so the opening is facing you, the lid is gone. And now you stack paper or layer paper in the shoebox, And with an X-Acto knife, you cut out certain shapes from the first layer and you cut out certain other shapes in the second. So sometimes it's a forest scene. Maybe there's a deer in front and the second piece of paper has trees cut out of it. And the third piece of paper behind that has mountains and then clouds and a moon and between layers, you can put different colored LEDs so they're illuminated. And if they're illuminated in response to something that's happening outside, like somebody's walking by and then it behaves a certain way or a certain sound is made and then certain things are lit up. So that's sort of an interactive light box idea. And there could be motors too that move move uh, like a kid on a swing. I think a student tried that. So if the hardware is well hidden, then this thing is truly magical. And anyone who sees this has to know what's going on. Like this just can't be happening. And this is something that my grade nines almost pulled off. It was the very first time we tried it. So only one or two of the 10 um, were anywhere near magical, but it's that kind of project that uh, really lights, lights everybody up. Like uh, that's just a cool thing to see
1: use the phrase familiar with what's under the hood. And I think this level of curiosity needs to be spotlighted, right? Because to your point, what you're describing, we can do. You can do, your students can do. And where does that start? It starts by asking the question, could we do this? And so, you know, I want to leave with listeners Uh, an encouragement, but also a challenge, a provocation that you would ask your students what would they like to invent and what would they like to make? And then I would encourage you to get in touch with Richard and begin this process of an engineering department that starts to conceive of how these things could be made for your schools, for your classroom. Because I think what gets lost in a lot of the physical computing conversation is that this is actually what physical computing is. Coding is a language, a language of utility, a language that starts with what if and ends with whoa. And it strikes me that that's what your course is much of your course is students growing into the question, what if, and then beyond that question to whoa. And often the woe, certainly in my case, when I visited your class came from me. And I want to spotlight that too, because they believed they could do it. They had the confidence that they could learn how to figure these things out. And I can't think of a more, uh, substantial display of what we hastily call 21st century skills than students who come up with ideas that have never been done and figure out a way to make them happen as part of the learning they're doing in a high school course.
0: Well said. I mean, that's a great way to put it. And it it occurred to me as you were saying that uh, this feeling of... Whoa, this is kind of an amazing thing that I think is a is a pretty good metric to judge the success of you know what has taken place in this course in this program but i'm st- like i'm i like I'm my own biggest critic and i'm prepared i'm I'm still prepared for the possibility that I'm doing it all wrong and that there's a better way. I really really am, and I am open to it. I'm far from you know a complete teacher here. I I know I can I can things can be better. So um I always ask my students in grade 12, you know, after you've gone on to post secondary, whether it's software engineering at Waterloo or something at Algonquin College, wherever you go, let me know if you can think of a way we could be doing things better. Please let me know. And almost invariably when I hear back from a student, it's almost like the, <laughs> I don't know how to. They're not quite disappointed with (laughs) with what their post secondary life is compared to what we were doing in the classroom, but what we were doing in the classroom was more fun, more meaningful than some of the projects that they're doing in in university, even even at Waterloo, which surprised me. Um, A first year physics student in Waterloo that's doing a a lab in computer engineering kind of stuff, computer science kind of stuff. One of the first projects is to code a traffic light. You know, in this direction, it's red. In that direction, it's green. And then when it goes from green to yellow, this one's still red, yada, yada, traffic light. And that's something I do in grade nine. That's kind of one of those perfunctory, not quite mindless things. It teaches what a timing diagram is and it teaches about uh, the delay function and yada, yada. But wow, that's what you're doing in first year physics, a first year physics student So, which is all to say, um, I'm keen to make this better. And having the satisfaction of knowing that there are other classrooms benefiting from our efforts would be a thrill for me and certainly a thrill for my students. And I think we are now um, in a position to do that. And it's one of those things where it's like, if you build it, they will come. I think it's very, very hard to picture this if you're just listening, but one day coming soon to a classroom near you, you're going to hear some, I don't know, cheers or something. And you'll see that those students are playing with these whatever kinds of machines. And you're going to say, where did you get those machines? And you'll find out it wasn't Amazon. It wasn't Aliexpress or Walmart. It was done by a school at the OCDSB, and that's going to be the real game changer, I think, because you're going to say, I got to get me some of that. And it's not going to be terribly expensive. You know, I just need to cover costs and we're happy and you're happy. And, uh, I want that, uh, that happiness to grow.
1: In the world of podcasting, that would be a perfect ending to this conversation. But I would be remiss in not having two further conversations before we wrap. And one is, it strikes me that what you were describing just then is a belief in the capacity of students to do this kind of work and do this kind of learning. And it strikes me that your university example emphasizes, I think, a problem that reaches into education to post-secondary and I think beyond, and I'm going to get to that in a second, is that we don't believe in the capacity of people to invent and make things anymore. You believe in the capacity of your students to make and invent things such that when they get to post-secondary education, they've actually made and invented well beyond the scope of what they're encountering when they get there. Because there is a belief that they don't have the capacity without some sort of prescribed education first to invent a Morse code machine or a, a BB-8 style um, globe or, or, or write a neural network uh, that predates much of, of machine thinking. And so I think that's an important point. But I think the other important point is a belief in educators' capacity to learn and to do these things in ourselves, a belief in ourselves that we can learn to work in this physical computing world and invent to learn with students, but also a belief from the system in educators that this ought to be the way that we do learning when it comes to this kind of of, of technology. That we ought not to be asked to just regurgitate a bunch of block code that accomplishes a straight line, but rather to invent something and make that thing with all of the foibles that that comes with, including potentially that it will not work or that it will fail. Of course.
0: Right. Exactly. That's engineering. That's real. I tell my students, like when I code something or when I'm building something, it just will not work the first time. It it absolutely won't work. I expect it to not work because that's really where the thinking begins. That's where it starts, not where it ends. That's not where you throw in the towel that's when the party gets started. Um, you mentioned the uh, f- uh, the creative aspect and I, I th- the inventiveness of it all. And I thought I'd mention one of the things I try to remember to tell my students is when it comes to computer engineering and logic gates and transistors and photo resistors and resistors and wire, nobody thinks of the word creativity. And why would they? Because I just see a bunch of stuff. I don't see a Furby. You know, I don't know if you remember <laughs> the Furby that interactive fuzzy toy. Well, that's what I see. I mean, once you've once you're a bit familiar with this stuff, then you just see the possibilities. You see past the hardware. This is boring. I didn't study engineering because I love wire and wrapping myself in wire and running around downtown. I'm not into that at all. I see what can be done with this it's a means to an end, so I make sure that I tell my students quite early on that when people hear the word creativity and inventiveness, they often think maybe of a of a blank canvas, a palette, and a paintbrush now that now that's where we can have some creativity and the point that I want to make is well, our palette is the world our paintbrush is motors we can make things move we can make things make sound we can make things talk we can i don't want to go overboard here but we can kind of create life like frankenstein's monster kind of stuff i mean this is our palette and talk about creativity i mean some of the things we've done have never existed before and will never exist again that is creativity writ large
1: and there's a really lovely symmetry to that, Richard, because we started with this idea of looking under the hood. And one could forget that you were using that as a metaphor initially to say that all around us, not unlike your description of the school that you walk within, there are things that, are, that were made. They were invented by a human being who was trying to solve a problem or create an idea. And what better conditions could we create with students than that approach to the world? Which is, it's a Furby now, but it could be any number of things because the only reason it's a Furby is because someone decided that it could be. What would you like it to be? Let's take it apart, look under the hood, and see what Frankenstein we can come up with.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly.
1: I so appreciate your time. And I so appreciate you, Richard. And I honestly can't wait to see uh where your students will go next and where you'll go next, because I watch it with a very, very keen eye. If for no other reason than I really like being in that state of woe that you described.
0: Thank you so much, Cameron. I really appreciate your support and uh, keep on doing what you're doing because uh, that is a big, big, big deal. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to the OCDSB XL podcast. To hear more stories of what powerful learning can look like, consider exploring our earlier episodes. Also, please share our stories as we endeavor to spotlight learning and the capacity of young people to contribute now to a world in which they seek meaning and connection.